You could be seated. And if you would, if you have a Bible with you, turn with me to Psalm 119. Psalm 119. And as you're turning there, let me remind you or tell you, if you don't know about it, about a little story in Luke chapter 10. A story of two sisters, Mary and Martha, who are hosting Jesus in their home. It's a story of two sisters with two pretty different approaches to having Jesus over for dinner. As you probably know, Martha is the hard worker who willingly confines herself to the kitchen to prepare the best meal for Jesus, and understandably so. But frustration begins to grow in Martha as she's doing all the work alone. Mary, her sister, was sitting at Jesus' feet, listening to his teaching. Mary was eating it up, so to speak, relatively unconcerned about the physical meal, much to her sister's growing aggravation. Now, don't misunderstand the story. There's certainly nothing wrong with working hard and with getting things done. There's certainly nothing wrong with making food for people. That's called hospitality, and the Bible commands it of all Christians. And there's certainly nothing wrong with shared labor, helping each other out and being helped out. And all that is particularly true when you and I, mere mortals, are getting together for dinner in one of our homes. But what made this moment in Luke 10 so unique is that it's centered on Jesus. As the story unfolds, we don't have to wonder which sister chose the right or better thing to do. We read in Luke 10, Mary sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. One thing is necessary. Jesus, learning from him, communing with him, that is necessary. And in some ways, every other thing, even every other good thing, can become a distraction from what is most important. Now surely, the Mary and Martha story applies to us today far beyond the the rare chance that Jesus might actually literally come over for dinner or sit in your living room someday. No, surely for us, the primary application has to do with the Bible, with prayer. Where do we, Christians today, go to hear from God, to meet with God, to commune with Him, to learn of Him? Well, we go to the Bible. We've been learning in recent weeks in Psalm 119 that there is this inexorable connection between God and his word. We've seen it already. We'll see it again in this week's passage. 
And so if we want to hear from God, if we want more of God, if we want to commune with God, we must turn to the Bible, God's word. And so we can say, by extension, that this one thing is necessary, the Bible. And we can say that there are indeed, like Martha, many things that trouble us, that cause us to worry, that distract us from that which is of most importance, that that which is the one and necessary thing. So with that in mind, let's turn to God's word now in Psalm 119. So we come to verses 129 to 144, the sections labeled Pei and Sede in this Hebrew acrostic poem. Verse 129, read on with me. He writes, your testimonies are wonderful, therefore my soul keeps them. The unfolding of your words gives light. It imparts understanding to the simple. I open my mouth and pant because I long for your commandments. Turn to me and be gracious to me, as is your way with those who love your name. Keep steady my steps according to your promise and let no iniquity get dominion over me. Redeem me from man's oppression that I may keep your precepts. Make your face shine upon your servant and teach me your statutes. My eyes shed streams of tears because people do not keep your law. Righteous are you, O Lord, and right are your rules. You have appointed your testimonies in righteousness and in all faithfulness. My zeal consumes me because my foes forget your words. Your promise is well tried and your servant loves it. I am small and despised, yet I do not forget your precepts. Your righteousness is righteous forever, and your law is true. Trouble and anguish have found me out, but your commandments are my delight. Your testimonies are righteous forever. Give me understanding that I may live. Well, we'll break this down one stanza at a time. Verses 129 to 136 deal with the unfolding of wonderful words. And then verses 137 to 144, they have to do with righteous words from a righteous God. So there are our two main headings, and then we'll have a couple of sub-points under each of them. And get this, it'll make up a sentence eventually at the end with the point and the sub-points of each of these two stanzas. And once again, like so many other weeks in this series of Psalm 119, we'll spend a little more time on the first stanza, partly because it it really does so well set up and position the second stanza. So here's the first, the unfolding of wonderful words. That's the main heading of the first stanza. Verse 129 says, your testimonies are wonderful. Now immediately we have to pause and remember that in our modern vocabulary today, uh, we say everything is wonderful, right? Uh, our plans for lunch next week, that sounds wonderful, we say. This queso dip is wonderful. Can I get the recipe? We might say we had a wonderful, quiet evening at home last night. And of course, George Bailey eventually learned that 
He had a wonderful life. Now, I'm only slightly lamenting that our culture waters down and overuses very profound and heavy words. More to the point, just take note that we have to always remember that in the Bible, even in our English Bibles, a word may have more significance than it does in our contemporary English usage. And that's certainly the case with this word, wonderful. God's testimonies are wonderful, not on par with wonder bread, but full of wonder. They're awe-striking. They cause us to stand in awe. What does? Well, God's testimonies specifically. If you've been with us in our study of Psalm 119, you'll remember that Testimonies is one of about eight different words used almost interchangeably for the Bible in this psalm. Word and law and statutes and commandments and judgments and precepts and testimonies. Yeah, they're used interchangeably somewhat, but they each do have their own significance. And so testimonies refers to God's own words which bear witness. They testify to his faithfulness and his trustworthiness. God's testimonies are wonderful, full of wonder. This word wonder, wonders, wonderful, or wondrous, these often relate to the Exodus. You know that story, the second book of the Bible, where God freed his people from Egyptian slavery, where God rescued his people from the Egyptian army, and where God brought his people safely to the other side of the Red Sea, miraculously. There, God did wonders. And not long after reaching the other side of the Red Sea, Moses thanked God in song. In chapter 15 of Exodus, he said, Who is like you among the gods, O Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in praises, working wonders. You see, there it is. That's what God's word records for us. Yes, laws. Yes, yes, stories. And yet so often within those stories, like the Exodus, God is working wonders. And so we need to look into God's word and keep looking. We need to see more and more. We need to stand in awe of what we find And we need God to unfold it to us. Notice that in verse 130, the unfolding of your words. This refers to God revealing more and more of his word. God peels back layers for us as we keep reading. Yes, we have the responsibility to read and to reread and to study the Bible and to ask questions of the Bible and to learn from others about the Bible. We also need to pray for God to do a supernatural work to reveal to us supernatural things. We call it illumination, where God lights up his word. It was in verse 18 of Psalm 119. Open my eyes that I might behold wondrous things out of your word. Think of how this same concept is found in Luke 24. 
Remember those two men on the road to Emmaus who were despairing about Jesus' death until the risen Christ, unbeknownst to them at first, he started walking alongside them and teaching them from the scriptures that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and be raised. He showed them, it says, from the Old Testament scriptures, all the things concerning himself. And afterward, the two men remarked, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened up the scriptures? That doesn't mean Jesus had a small pocket Bible and he literally opened its pages. No, he opened up, he unfolded the word. And just a few verses later, he met with the 11 disciples, and there he said, everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then Luke tells us, then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. The unfolding of God's word is wonderful, especially when it reveals to us Jesus and more of him. So the unfolding of wonderful words, now let's add to that, it produces light and longing. It produces light and longing. Verse 130 and 131, the unfolding of your words gives light. It imparts understanding to the simple. Now light here in this context, it means understanding, Clarity, information, knowledge, but not just any of those by themselves. It's not just information, not just data, not just instruction like it's an owner's manual. Think of how light works in the real world by experience when it shines specifically on something beautiful and wonderful or surprising. Well, then it's experiential. It's emotional. Sure, light in the middle of the night can simply be the difference between kicking the coffee table and not kicking the coffee table. And it's nice to not kick the coffee table. That's a good thing. And so, yes, God's word does tell us where and where not to walk. It shines light on where's the safe path and, and how to avoid the painful path. But it does more than that. Think of light that makes visible a beautiful Christmas tree in the wee hours before Christmas morning. Think of light that reveals your spouse to you when you've been apart for some time. You think of light which, you know, shows to you snow accumulating quietly outside if you like that kind of thing. I do. Light thrills, surprises, it saves. Listen to this in 2 Corinthians 4. The God who said, light shine out of darkness, back at creation. He has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. 
Jesus Christ is the pathway to God. He reveals information and truth, yes, but not just information. It's an experience. There's something emotional to it. And so, verse 131, I open my mouth and pant, longing for your commandments. You see, it's emotive. It's experiential. He's tasted and he wants more. In God's spiritual way of working things, tasting increases appetite. For the Christian, eating, spiritually speaking, begets a greater appetite. We want more. This isn't a one and done kind of thing. Because God's words are wonderful, and because God's words give light, the psalmist wants more. And he uses language that's shared with Psalm 42 and 43. There, it's the deer panting for the water brook. So he, the psalmist, pants for God. Now there in Psalm 42, it's used somewhat negatively. Here's a man who can't get to God. He's in a desert place and he needs water fast. But in Psalm 119, he's filled up and wanting more. He wants more of God. And hence, he wants more of his word. So notice again the, the strong connection between God and his word. Language that's elsewhere used for God, panting and longing after him, is here used about the Bible. He pants and longs for more of the Bible. A couple of questions come to mind for me at this point. And maybe for you, particularly if you're not panting for God's word these days. Could it be that you've become so accustomed to spiritual hydration to keep the metaphor going, or spiritual starvation, that you don't really need to eat or drink from the Bible, let alone hunger and thirst and pant for more of it? We've talked about this kind of thing before in this series. When someone physically fasts from food, it doesn't take but a few days before food is just, eh, they're indifferent to it. The, the stomach grumbles have stopped. Their body, for a while, operates fine without food. For a while. We know that can't last very long. We know we'll die if we don't eat. And we know that not eating is the instinct of those whose bodies are shutting down. And so maybe, maybe you've been living sermon to sermon and nothing six days in between. Well, remember, eating begets a greater appetite. Another question you might be pondering is, you know, if maybe currently you are pretty regularly going to God's word, but it's nothing like opening your mouth and panting and longing. Well, are you possibly missing that powerful connection between God and his word? 
If you've been coming to the Bible feeling like it is an archaic, dusty, ancient text, it may be because you're approaching it as an archaic, ancient text. Remember that God says, this is the one to whom I'll look. He who is humble and contrite of heart and who trembles at my word. Here in this living book, God speaks afresh. Here in this living book, we meet with the living God. The unfolding of wonderful words produces light and more longing, now to finish our sentence, leading to biblical petitions. It leads to biblical petitions or prayer requests. If you look down in your Bibles, you'll see in verses 132 to 135, there are a string of six petitions. He says, turn to me and be gracious to me. He says, keep steady my steps according to your promise. Let no iniquity get dominion over me. He says, redeem me from man's oppression so that I may keep your precepts. You see how the Bible has shaped his praying and vice versa? What is he praying for? He's praying for God's grace. He's praying for God's protection and particularly of the spiritual variety. He's praying for God to keep him from waywardness and being controlled by sin. And he's praying for God's liberation. He's praying to be freed from his enemies. But notice why. Verse 134, redeem me, rescue me, free me from man's oppression so that I may keep your precepts. He's essentially praying for religious liberty. But notice he's not praying for religious liberty just because it's his God-given right. Or just because the Constitution says so. He's not praying for religious liberty just because, well, that's certainly more pleasant than the alternatives. He's praying for religious liberty so that he can more freely keep God's ways. It's about God. We see something similar in 1 Timothy 2 when Paul tells Timothy that prayers and intercessions and thanksgiving should be made for all people, for kings even, for those in high positions. Why? Well, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. He goes on to say, God wants all kinds of people to be saved. Pray for religious liberty, if you will, so that you can live a quiet and godly life and so that others might come to believe in Jesus too. That's the, what the Psalm 119 man was praying for. The Bible influenced the aims and the intentions and the motives of his prayer request. He could pray like this because God had promised as he did. I hope you know that there's a distinction between praying anything you want in accord with God's will. Like even Jesus who said, if there's any way, let this cup pass for me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. 
There's a difference between that and praying what God has already promised. We can pray for the Lord Jesus to build his church with extraordinary confidence because he said he would. We can pray for Christians to grow in grace and knowledge because he promised he would. We can pray for each other's trials and for God's faithfulness and kindness and protection and even growth in those trials with amazing confidence and surety because he's promised that he's using trials in those ways. So rather than shirk away from what God has promised in his prayer request because it's already promised, Oh, no, he leans in to those promises and prays them, just like the Apostle Paul so often did when he was praying for different churches. You can see usually the first chapter of his letters to various churches, Philippians, Ephesians, Colossians, and so forth, and see how he prays there. The man in Psalm 119 prays as he did because the Bible shaped his prayer requests So he prayed as he did, and he also prayed for more of God. For more of God. Notice verse 135. Make your face shine upon your servant. Again, just like light, yes, is information, but not just information. It's also experiential and somewhat emotive. And so here in verse 135, he wants to experience and commune with God. Dare we say, he wants to see God. He's fully aware of what God told Moses. No man can see my glory and live. And yet, he prays that God's face would shine upon him. He's clearly leaning on that famous, arionic blessing of Numbers 6. There, Aaron was told by God to bless the people like this. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. There are actually three different shared words between Numbers 6 and our verses in Psalm 119. Gracious, keep, and make your face shine. This man in Psalm 119 not only prayed prayers in line with Scripture, prayers shaped by Scripture, he also prayed Scripture. And remember that practice we talked about a few weeks ago in which, in some, in which some of you have uh, learned a little bit more how to do if you were going to the, the Bible study class offered on Sunday mornings, one-to-one with God. Remember that when we don't know when, what to pray, when we can't find words to say, we, we lean on the Bible for direction, but we can also lean on it for the very words we pray. And before we move to the second stanza, notice the effect that all this had on his outlook on the world and sin in the world. Notice verse 136 where he says, My eyes shed streams of tears because people do not keep your law. Like Jesus who wept over Jerusalem because of its stubborn unbelief. For this guy, sin breaks his heart. His own sin, sure, we'll see that in the very last verse of this long psalm. 
But not just his own sin. He's not so humble, quote unquote, as some people define it. He's not so humble that he won't or can't lament other people's sin. When we hear of ten people killed in Pittsburgh just because they were Jewish, and when we hear of a man in Louisville entering a Kroger and killing two black men, apparently just because they were black. And when we hear of pipe bombs being mailed to politicians and journalists simply because they're Democrats or have criticized the president, and when we hear of more predatory rape of little boys by Roman Catholic priests, what shall we do but cry? Or maybe we could say, why don't we cry? Why don't we cry? When we hear of a man callously and cruelly leaving his wife and little children for another woman, there are other things you can do but cry, but let's not do less than that. My eyes shed streams of tears because people do not keep your law. Oh, for more of that here. The unfolding of wonderful words produces light and more longing, leading to biblical petitions and also lament. Now the second stanza more quickly. Righteous words from a righteous God. That's the main idea of the second stanza, and it's right there at the heading. Verse 137. Righteous are you, O Lord, and right are your rules. And again, notice that the tight connection between God and his word. God is righteous, so is his word. His word is righteous. In fact, notice righteousness and and similar words just dominate this whole section. You have in verse 138, righteousness and faithfulness. In 142, your righteousness is righteous forever. Your law is true. In 144, your testimonies are righteous forever. Now God's righteousness isn't just his moral purity though it's that, but it's also his justice and his faithfulness and his trustworthiness. And so God's ways for his people, the path he tells us to walk in, God's ways for us are right because he's right. God's promises to us are sure Because he's rock-solidly sure and unchanging. And so his word as a whole, in all of its parts, it is true. Because God is true and he only speaks truth. But how do we know? How do you know that the Bible is the word of God? Well, in answering that question, there is a time to talk about the historicity of these stories. 
There is a time to talk about the manuscript evidence that we have. And there is a time to talk about how the Bible's known authors were so predominantly eyewitnesses to these events. But there is also a time and a place to simply state what God's word says about itself. Because the Bible comes from a faithful and righteous and true and trustworthy God, the Bible is, by extension, faithful and righteous and trustworthy. And this is the Bible's testimony. Like in Psalm 19, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. You can trust the scriptures because God says so. You might say, I think that's circular reasoning. Isn't that circular reasoning? Well, maybe. But what's the alternative when we're talking about an ultimate authority? What authority will you summons to prove God right or false? What litmus test will you apply to the true and living God to see if he passes your own reasoning? No offense, but who do you think you are, if so? Where did you get such great learning? I know it's the air we breathe, and so it's no surprise that many people today never question an approach to truth which has themselves on the throne, has themselves at the buttons or at the controls. Most modern Americans are, are actually pretty willing to consider any source of truth, but they will evaluate each little part according to their own thoughts or feelings. They might say, yeah, that seems true because it's consistent with my experience. They might say, yeah, this one seems good. It seems like that would probably work for people. They might say, yeah, that, that makes sense to me. Therefore, I take it. And people don't really care these days where it comes from. They've just sort of assembled for themselves a collection of personal truths. It's like we've made ourselves the quality control inspectors at a factory, a factory of ideas. And so items come down the conveyor belt and we think, well, this one goes over here, reject. And this one goes over there, keep it, that's good. But who are we? Who died and made us, you know, Control inspectors, quality control inspectors of ideas. And what happens if God comes down that conveyor belt? What are you going to do then? What the Bible says is that the Bible is God coming down on this conveyor belt. And we better just receive it. 
The Bible says that's what Jesus is. God come down to us. So we trust the scriptures because God says so. We trust the scriptures because that's where we find salvation. Salvation. Listen to this in 2 Timothy 3. Lovely words that Paul writes to Timothy. So personal. He says, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it. And how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings, the Bible. The sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God. And it reveals Christ. It it provides salvation. It gives us the information of salvation that we must put our faith in. Or how about how Paul puts it in Romans 3. Where he says, now in the new covenant, this side of the cross, now the righteousness of God. Remember that's part of our theme in Psalm 119. Now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. That is, apart from keeping the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. Bear witness to what? The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. So now the righteousness of God is not just recorded in Scripture. It's in Scripture also that we find... It's been manifested in Jesus Christ, in his life, in death, and resurrection, where he was a payment for sins, and now offers mercy and forgiveness to all and any who will simply believe that it's so and ask him for it. You can lean in on that. You can believe that today. Jesus himself said in that classic Luke 24 passage to which I already referred. Remember, he opened the scriptures to them, specifically this, that the Messiah had to suffer and be raised on the third day, and that repentance and faith for the forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed to all the nations. Jesus says that's in the Old Testament. The New Testament records that it's all about him. That's how God would be gracious to us and bless us and cause his face to shine upon us. It's in Jesus. So if you don't know Jesus, make a beeline to Jesus. I mean, either either cast him aside and move on about life and deal with the consequences. Or... Pick him up, take him in, sit at his feet, learn from him, know his mercy, receive it, and stay at his feet the rest of your life. We trust the scriptures because these righteous words from a righteous God, now quickly moving on in our sentence It produces confidence and joy. The righteous words from a righteous God produce confidence and joy. 
Verse 140, your promise is well tried and your servant loves it. Verse 143, your commandments are my delight. And God's righteous words from a righteous God, they they produce confidence and joy. And here's the last part. Despite trouble and anguish. Despite trouble and anguish. This man is not in some sort of lofty mountaintop palatial surroundings. This is a man who knows suffering in this world. The Bible is indeed comforting to him. It's confidence boosting, sure. He loves the Bible because he's tasted and seen that the Lord is good. And what's most remarkable about that is it's in spite of the trouble and anguish that continues all around him. You see, verse 141, I am small and despised, yet I do not forget your words. Verse 143, trouble and anguish have found me out. Like they're on the hunt. Like they're lions and they've caught up. Trouble and anguish have me in their grasp. But your commandments are my delight. When all around my soul gives way, he then is still my hope and stay. We sometimes sing, on Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is shifting sand. And so Christian, remember where we started Remember, one thing is necessary. Sitting at Jesus' feet, in communion with him, in the presence of him, in submission to him, enjoying him. Like Martha, we're often busy, distracted, anxious about many things. And we need to remember, even though those things won't go away, one thing is necessary. The unfolding of wonderful words produces light and longing, leading to biblical petitions and lament. Righteous words from a righteous God produce confidence and joy despite trouble and anguish. Let's pray. Oh Lord, thank you for your word. We thank you for its clarity. We marvel also, Lord, at its complexity. It describes a massive, eternal, infinite God. No surprise that we could keep reading and reading all our lives with careful study and never plumb its depths. We'll surely never plumb the depths of your attributes and ways, even in a new heaven and new earth with transformed bodies. But in the meantime, Lord, we want to lean on your word. We pray you'd give us faith. We pray, Lord, that we would trust your promises, rehearse your promises. 
We pray, Lord, that we would more frequently open your word and look for opportunities to wonder, to stand in awe. So, Lord, we pray for every Christian in this room to feel more confident in your word and to be more eager to spend time in it. And we pray for those who are with us who haven't yet come to believe in Jesus. We pray, Lord, the miracle of 2 Corinthians 4 would happen even here, that you, Lord Jesus, on your face would shine in people's hearts the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. We thank you for that miracle and pray in your name. Amen.